listening to The Fret Files, the Guitar Workshop Podcast with Eric Daw. To participate in the show, go to my website, ericdaw.com. That's E-R-I-C-D-A-W dot com. Click on the contact link and submit your question or comment there. I'll use it as part of the show. The other way to do it is to call or text 757-774-8482. Leave your voicemail there and I'll use that as part of the show. And now, the Fret Files Podcast. Indeed, welcome to the Fret Files Podcast. My name is Eric Daw, your guitar engineer with over 20 years of experience building and repairing guitars. This is a podcast about guitar repair, guitar building, guitar news, guitar science, and guitar opinions. Sitting beside me is my lovely wife and co-host, Melissa. This is a question and answer episode where we will respond to listener submitted emails. I will read the questions and Eric will try to answer them. That's pretty much how it goes. We've got a lot of good questions. Questions about truss rods. Questions about, uh, I, I don't know, let me see. I don't really, you know, people wonder, I think, how much show prep I do. I, I do almost none. If I had to do show prep, I wouldn't do the show because uh, I don't really have time to do it. So this is just me shooting from the hip as we read the questions. So here, Sweet. let me look and see what we have. It looks like we have questions about tuners. Questions about working with leather for Melissa. I got a question. Questions about shaping necks and different neck profiles. Questions about different knobs and different kinds of solder. So, yeah, lots of stuff to get to there. We're also going to do a bit of news, but... uh, uh, What's on your bench? Oh, yeah, what's on my bench? So, lately I've been working on a lot of custom guitars but also doing a a fair amount of repairs, pickup rewinds and refrets and fret levels. Uh, My next, the thing I've got to start tomorrow is a neck reset on a uh, 70s Martin. uh, 70s Martin D18. Cool. Yeah. So that'll be fun. Uh, I've got that. Coming up, I've got a... I need to rewind a pickup this week from a mid-60s Fender Telecaster. Wow. Dead pickup there that got sent to me from some fellows in Portland. What else am I working on? I do... You know, I do a lot of setups. Just really run-of-the-mill, average, normal repairs that uh, don't really register in my memory that well. If I had to remember every guitar I've ever worked on... You wouldn't my remember brain my would name. explode. That's right. Yeah. You hey. hardly remember my birthday as it is. Anyhow, I'm, hey, that's not fair. Anyhow, <laughs> I'm very busy. I'm doing a lot of work lately. Uh, we have some guitar news. Shall we do some news? Let's do it. Guitar news. This is from ultimateclassicrock.com, written by Martin Keelty from August. 
2018. The guitar played by George Harrison during the Beatles' final appearance at the Cavern Club in Liverpool is expected to sell for as much as 500,000 U.S. dollars at auction in September. Sales agents Gardiner Holgate said... Harrison took possession of this Maton Master Sound MS-500 after sending in his Gretsch Country Gentleman for repairs at Barrett's in Manchester. The owner lent him the Australian guitar as a stand-in. After the Gretsch was returned, Harrison decided to keep the Maton, too, and used it on a number of occasions, including at the last show, at the last Cavern show on August 3rd, 1963. After the Maton was returned to Barrett's, Dave Barry and the Cruisers guitarist Roy Barber swapped it for his Fender Stratocaster, the auctioneers said in a statement. He was told that the guitar was the Maton used by Harrison. Barber used the guitar for several years, later putting it into storage. After Roy Barber's death, his widow Val auctioned the guitar, and the guitar has since been exhibited at the Beatles Story Museum in Liverpool from 2014 to 2018. The guitar is also featured in Andy Babuck's book, Beatles Gear, All the Fab Four's Instruments from Stage to Studio. The Maton previously changed hands in 2015 when it sold for $485,000, leading to this new guide price. The current lot includes a postcard showing Harrison with the guitar, along with letters of authenticity from two of Barber's bandmates. The auction, which takes place on September 12th and 13th, also features a Pink Floyd amplifier and guitars owned by Steve Howe and Maurice Gibb. This latest auction follows the sale of Harrison's first electric guitar in May, which went for $430,000 after an estimate of $300,000. That is a lot of money. For, you know, what's weird about this story to me is that that is not a guitar that Harrison is really known for. Right. In fact, I'm a, I'm a, Pretty big Beatles fan, and uh, I had to look this guitar up. I had never seen one. I'd never seen it before. Wow. Um, he, you know, only used it briefly, and uh, I'd never seen a picture of him with it. Uh, and if I had, I didn't remember. It wasn't right. anything notable. I mean, it's not like this is his, you know, Black Gretsch or his... Uh, or his Rick 12-string or anything like that. Of course, if those guitars came up for sale, they'd probably be more like, you know... Several million yeah, or something. Yeah, five million. Right. So I guess 500000 is a bargain, huh? I wonder where those guitars mm. are. Who has those, do you think? I would assume they're in the Harrison family. Mm. You're probably right. I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Anyhow, that story just caught my attention. I thought that was really interesting, you know... That that's a guitar that if it if it hadn't been played by George Harrison at the Cavern Club, that's a guitar that would yeah. be worth five hundred dollars. Right. Yeah. I mean, maybe more than that, but you know, it's not five hundred thousand. Right. Really, Crazy. Yeah. Wild stuff. We have a call. Shall we take a call? Let's do it. Hey, Eric and Melissa, I just got a question. Hoping maybe you can uh, shed some light on a process that's a bit of a mystery to me. Um, this is Sean from Allentown, by the way. Um, I want to know a bit more about the process of putting a truss rod in a solid maple neck, like an old, like a vintage Fender-style maple neck that has a skunk stripe on the back. 
because most resources that I see when it comes to actual make like instructions for building necks um, or even companies that sell supplies for making necks, they sell the neck blanks and then laminate uh, fretboards, even maple laminate fretboards. Um, there doesn't seem to be much, by the way, of instructions for putting that channel in the back and the skunk stripe and everything. Because, I mean, it seems pretty straightforward to put the one in the top, you cut the channel, you set the truss rod, and then you laminate the fretboard on top. And I'm just a little curious about the um, original method used on the maple frip, on the maple neck fenders. So if you could just uh, shed a little light on that process. I mean, obviously it's still widely used. There's even Mexican fenders that have skunk stripes on them. So just a little curious because there doesn't seem to be much out there about that. So uh, if you could, you know, shed a little light on it, uh, explain it a little bit for me and the other listeners, I think I wouldn't be the only one who'd appreciate this. So uh, thanks for listening. Uh, I'd love everything that you're doing with the podcast and uh, look forward to your answer. Bye. Thanks, Sean. And thanks for calling. Uh, it's a great question and you're right. It's, it's definitely uh, not seen much in the build it yourself kind of, you know, DIY build your own neck uh, thing. It's a little bit trickier to do. It's much easier to route the channel put the truss rod in, and then put the fingerboard over it. Yeah, that makes sense. And it's interesting to me, it's always seems like more work, but I assume it it had something to do, knowing about Leo Fender's sensibilities, it probably had something to do with cost. A, a solid, added solid piece of maple was kind of a, it was a, it was a novel idea, and uh, I, to my knowledge, he was the first one to do that. And I think that it was to avoid buying a, you know, a, an extra f- piece of wood like a fingerboard and having to, to glue that. So the, the neck is just a solid chunk of maple. The frets are actually just in the neck. The fenders didn't have truss rods. And I think Leo believed that a solid piece of maple was going to be so strong that he didn't need to do a truss rod. But uh, it became obvious that that was not the case. So... He started doing truss rods, and he started doing them this way, rear-mounted, and then the channel is covered up with a skunk stripe. And uh, to to make a neck like that, uh, the, the slot is routed from the back using a special jig and a, and a router, and there's a high point in the middle. And when you make the cavity, there's a high point around the, like, sixth fret or so, and then the two ends tilt up towards the fingerboard. So it's a curved channel. So make, making a, uh, a neck like that is a little bit tricky because uh, the, the stripe is to plug the access channel, of course. Right. Because the neck is one piece, you know. Right. And the, the type of truss rod that's used when you do this is a, it's a single action, a single rod, you know, a single action design. The rod sits in a channel and it's, it's anchored at both ends, and it's the channel is curved toward the back of the neck, meaning that the the rod is closest to the back of the neck in the middle of the neck, and the ends of the rod kind of lift up toward the frets. So the whole oh, okay. thing, the whole thing, kind of has a uh, a droop to it. 
and the droop of the rod is what allows it to make the neck bend when it's tightened. Right. Does that make sense? Yes. Uh, installing this kind of rod is tricky because it's installed pretty deep into a slot that's only slightly wider than the rod itself, and then a, a perfectly machined, matched piece of walnut has to be glued into place over the, uh, to you know, inside the channel. Right. Then there's two access holes drilled, one through the headstock toward the uh, toward the route, uh, and then the other side of the heel toward the uh, toward the route, so that they meet in the middle. So it makes one big long channel right. through the whole neck, right? Uh, and then the the two uh, so the the hole at the heel is where your adjustment nut goes, and the hole in the headstock gets filled. After the truss rod is installed. So that's just there to help in- install the truss rod, I guess? Uh-huh. And, okay. then, it, and then it gets filled uh, with a, uh, a round walnut plug that ends up looking like a teardrop shape by the time it gets trimmed down and flush with the, uh, the surface of the curvature of the headstock face. Right. You know? And the rod is anchored under about the first fret uh, between the nut and the first fret. Uh, so that the rod won't turn inside the neck. Okay. Right? And then as you tighten up the neck, it puts upward pressure mm-hmm. on the neck and counteracts the uh, force of the strings. So I hope that explains it. I, I I can't really... I mean, it takes special jigs and, uh, you know, it, it, some woodworking and... and uh, it sounds like a pain in the butt. It is. I can't. I, it's hard for me to even put words to it because it's not the kind of thing that I can just give a quick two-minute dissertation on on the podcast and expect you to be able to do it. Right. This is more advanced woodworking. It really is. That uh, it's. But that sums it up. The rod's held in a concave channel, and it's anchored at each end, and the adjustment nut is tightened, and uh, then. Uh, the backward force that that counteracts the pull of the guitar strings. I don't know how to explain it. I think I think that you did a good job the first well, time. Well, I hope so. By the way, sometimes they used koa instead of walnut. Oh, really? Uh-huh. Interesting. Well, depending on who you ask. But uh, Anyhow, that's kind of an overview of it. Not, not for the beginner, certainly, but uh, it can be done. With the right tools and a little bit of knowledge. Shall we take some questions? Yep. Let's do it. Letters. We get letters. We get stacks and stacks of letters. Believe it or not, Melissa got a question. <gasps> yeah, let's read it. I'm going to read it. I'm going to read you a question. Okay. Are you ready? Yes. Hi, Melissa and Eric. Notice how you're first. Yep. Hi, Melissa and Eric. I've been thinking about making myself a simple leather strap and was wondering if you'd be able to give me an idea of what tools are a must-have for a beginner and also if there's a good place to get a small amount of leather and what to look out for when buying leather. Thanks, Rylan. Uh, I've never answered a question before. This is exciting. Aren't you lucky? I'm so excited. Um, if you are going to make yourself a simple leather strap, I would... You can do one of two things. If you're going to make a bunch of straps, I'd get a cow side and a strap cutter. But if you're just going to make one, 
they sell at um, like Tandy stores or any local mom and pop leather shop. They'll sell just strips of leather in various widths. Uh, and those work really well. And uh, they usually run like $20, $25, depending on the width. But uh, if you don't want to do that, you can also just buy a Tandy leather has guitar strap blanks that you can buy. Like a make your own guitar strap yep. kit? Yep. And that makes it really easy. You just buy it. And it's usually pretty crummy leather, but it's already guitar strap shaped. So you can just, you know, put your design on it and dye it or whatever you want to do and then put it on your guitar. Makes it easy. But if you don't want to go that route, you know, buy this just the previously cut strips. Uh, and if you have a utility knife, that's that'll do you. Uh, you can, I mean... It depends on how deep you want to go. I could give you 500 tools that you could use to really hone your technique, but... And he didn't say whether or not he wants to tool it or not. Right. So tooled leather is a is a completely different level here. I don't know if he wants to do tooled leather or not. But well, and if you want to tool it, uh, also Tandy just sells a simple little... It's got a swivel knife, and then it has like six different stamping tools. Just like a beginner's kit. Like a beginner's kit, and I don't, oh, I don't that's know how handy. much those are. They might be fifty bucks, but wow, that much. Yeah, if you wanted to try that, I don't know how much they are. I haven't looked. They might be ten dollars. I don't know. And uh, if he wants to dye it black, what's the best way to dye it black uh, or to dye it? You know, the easiest way is probably just to to buy leather dye. You know, uh. But there are some homemade methods that work. If you have some steel wool, you can dissolve it in vinegar, and that is a really good black dye. It makes your leather reek like vinegar for a few weeks, but then that smell goes away, and then you just have a nice black. So you put steel wool in vinegar. And you let it dissolve for like a week, and then you just apply it with a sponge. And it turns the leather black? Yeah. It reacts chemically with the leather. It's really cool. But if you don't want to do that, obviously, just go buy some leather dye. It's not that much. It's like six bucks for a little four-ounce bottle. Hmm. Interesting. And you just apply it with a sponge. And it's hard. Dark colors are hard to get even, for sure. So you'd have to take, you'd have hmm. to do multiple uh, coats. And if you're going to do leather dye with multiple coats, you're also going to have to condition your leather afterwards. So like a neat's foot oil, just once it's dyed, put your neat's foot oil on do several coats, let them dry between coats. Hmm. Um, I think that's about it. If you want to be real simple, all you really need is the leather and a utility knife. And yeah. you can re- you can make that work. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Hmm. If you want to get crazy, I could email me. I'll email you a list of 500 you, tools. I'm imagining, so if I cut the leather, it would have kind of a rough end. A rough edge? How do you make the edge smooth? So the easiest way to do it is to buy an edge beveler, and it's just this little knife that has... it's Well, it's not even a knife. It's like a... I don't know. How do you describe it? It's like a little blade with two little stoppers on each side, and you just cut the corner of the leather off, so you're rounding the edge of the leather. Does Mm -hmm. that make sense? And how do you burnish it? So you burnish it by... You sand that down nice and smooth... And then you burnish it by getting it wet, and then you just rub it with something smooth. You can rub it with a bone folder, or they sell special burnishers that are pretty cheap. Hmm. Uh, And then, again, you can get as deep as you want. I usually just use beeswax as a polish on the edges. Oh, yeah. Yeah. 
Awesome. Thanks, Rylan. I hope that I hope that helped, Rylan. It helped me. Cool. Hi, Eric and Melissa. I was recently working on a guitar with a set of tuners I was unfamiliar with. They were the Godo Cluson style Magnum locking tuners. The kind of locking tuners that lock themselves under string tension. Oh yeah. While removing the strings from this Les Paul, which had three by three tuners. Not a, not a fan of those, by yeah. the way. I failed to realize that not all of the tuning posts tighten and loosen the follow, following the righty-tighty-lefty-loosey rule. Yeah. I over-torqued on, on one of the posts, snapping the shaft under my incredibly strong, manly hands. <laughs> <laughs> I contacted the customer, stating that I had good news for them. I would be purchasing a brand new set of tuners for them. This made me think of you and your many years of experience. Can you share a story or two in which you have made a mistake while working on a customer's guitar? How did you handle the situation with the customer? And can you give any advice as to how to handle a potential slip of a screwdriver while scratching a finish? I don't have the skill set to refinish a guitar. It hasn't happened yet, but what if it does? Best to you, Melissa and the kids. Dave. Thanks, Dave. Yeah, those tuners. I'm not a fan. I remember when those came out in the 90s. Yeah, anyhow, uh well, I think you handle it in the in the right way just saying, "Look, um you know, I good news, I I'm going to buy you a new set of tuners." And that's that's the right way to do it, certainly. I mean, anytime something like this happens and when a guitar's on your bench and something bad happens to it, you're responsible and you have to make it right with the customer, whatever that means, you know, and whatever the situation is, uh, if it's a scratch or something like that, then yeah, you know, it's the best course of action is to be straightforward with the customer. Say, this is what happened. This is how I, uh, uh, this is how I suggest we we remedy the situation and make sure that the customer's happy. That's the that's the bottom line. You got to make sure the customer's happy. I'm trying to think of a specific instance, and uh, the only instance that's coming to mind is when I, uh, you know, a, a lot of finishes are really delicate, and I I uh, set up a, a Telecaster for a customer. And this is this is when I worked at a guitar store, and I set up a Telecaster for a customer. And one of my coworkers at the store came in and said, "Wow, what a great Tele! Can I see it?" And I handed it to my coworker, who immediately rested it on the edge of my bench. And as he did, the guitar like slid down the edge of the bench and just flaked a little bit of paint off of the edge. Mm. Yeah. Ugh, so I had to touch that up and. uh I touched it up and it looked fine. Right. But I told the customer, here's what happened, you know, and this happened while it was in my possession. And so I'm not only is your repair free, but I've touched it up and it looked great, you know, but yeah. I hope, I hope that there are no hard feelings, you know, and that's how you have to proceed. You know, right. you have to make sure the customer's happy. That's really the bottom line. Right. You have to make sure your customer's happy. Um, knock on wood, nothing super rowdy, bad, evil has happened under my watch. I really do try to be careful. Man, I'm sure that there's more instances a long, yeah, a long time ago, like 20, 15 years ago. I dropped a tuning fork on a guitar top. 
That's the last time I did that. <laughs> it's 15 years ago. Put a nice little ding in it. But the guy had just bought the guitar. Oh, no. Yeah, from the store that I was working at. And uh, I did what I could. I touched it up. I filled the ding. Right. I told the customer, and he wanted to return the guitar. So he returned it, you know. And so my boss had to take the guitar back in, and I'm... He was very, my boss was very understanding about it. Oh, that's good. But. That sucks. It really sucked. And I'm sure that, uh, that was it, that, it, yeah, it was just cool how understanding he was about it, but not all bosses would be that way. And I'm sure he felt. It sounds to me though, like if I bought a brand new guitar that I was really excited about. Well, it was a used guitar, but yeah. Well, then even even more so. If I bought a used guitar that I was really excited about and then had it repaired and there was a ding in it, that wouldn't bother me at all. I mean, it's a used guitar. It well, sounds like he had buyer's remorse. I don't know. I really don't know. I don't think so. But you bring up an interesting point. Everybody's different. And some people are really, really, really particular. Yeah, I guess that's true. And nobody understands that like... A repairman. You just wouldn't believe how particular some people can be and how um, how different everybody is when it comes to what they want. Right. Uh, what they want in a repair or what their expectations are. It's amazing how different people, what their different expectations can be. So it just, you know, case by case, but... I guess the uh, the best way to move forward is to be as careful as possible and and don't damage any guitars. Of course. Yeah. Well, this guy you know, has incredibly strong manly hands, so it's I'm it's probably it's hard amazing for him. he didn't just snap the neck in half, right? With those hands, my God. <laughs> Thanks, Dave. Hey, Eric and Melissa. It's been a while, and I thought another question was due on my end. Melissa, ooh, I got another question. Wow, holy cow. Melissa, what is the hardest part about working with leather? The physicality of it or quality control? Eric, have you ever modified a neck profile from, say, a D to a V? And can someone at home do this? Hope Idaho is working out great for your family. All the best, Jonathan in Victoria, Canada. Thanks, Jonathan. Idaho is awesome. We love it. We do love it. Melissa, go ahead. Uh, the hardest part about working with leather is that <clears throat> I think it's, you know what it is? It's probably that it's extremely unforgiving. If I make a mistake, I have to start over completely. Yeah. And it sucks, especially if you get to the very end. I, some There was one time I was dying a strap for a customer mm-hmm. and I screwed it up real bad and I hated to do it, but I had to start over from scratch. Because you were you were in the last stages, I, but it right. I had spent fifteen hours on this guitar, on this guitar strap, and uh, I wow. had to start over on it. Which I try and think of it as just practice. It's just practice when that happens. But yeah, that's a good way to think about it. It sure hurts when that happens. Huh? It's that unforgiving. You can't like if you if you tool something and you didn't mean to tool that part. Can you, like, on wood, if if raw wood has a ding in it, 
you can wet it and and then heat it up with a soldering iron and steam it and get that ding out. Right. I guess you can't do that with leather, right? No. Well, I mean, you, there's certain ways you can cover up a mistake, but sometimes, like, there's just nothing you can just do. Just nothing you can do. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Uh, he says, have you ever modified a neck profile, say, from a D to a V, and can someone at home do this? Yeah. The um, It can be done, absolutely, and it's not rocket science. Uh, it can be done the the biggest problem is to do that, that you have to remove the finish. So that has to be dealt with. It either has to be refinished or left raw, which is kind of a problem. If you leave it raw wood, uh, it's not protected from fluctuations in humidity any longer, so you can the neck can much more easily warp. All right. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I've, I've certainly modified uh, neck profiles before. Um, I shape necks all the time, and I do, you know, people sometimes, they uh, ask me to, that you know, my neck is, the neck is too thick, can you thin it down a little bit, and it can be done. The tricky part is if it's a, if it's a polyurethane neck, it's hard to touch that up, it's hard to re-spray that. So, um, if it's a neck that I've made, then I know exactly what, what tint I've used and what paint I've used, and it's very easy to to reshape it and then respray it. So it just depends on on the paint situation. That's the biggest that's the biggest uh, question mark. There is the paint situation. <laughs> yep. Thanks, Jonathan. Shall we take a break? Let's do it. Liz here from Emerald City Guitars, located in the heart of historic Pioneer Square in downtown Seattle, Washington. We are one of the world's premier vintage guitar shops, going strong for over 22 years. Specializing in the most rare, the funkiest, and most collectible vintage and pre-owned electric guitars, acoustic guitars, amplifiers, and more. We cater to anyone and everyone, from the guy next door to collectors and famous rock stars. Not only do we pay top dollar for used gear, we also offer trade-ins and consignment. We also have in-house repair and offer free appraisals. We have a variety of social media accounts that we post our goods daily. Find us on Facebook and follow us on Instagram at EC Guitars. Subscribe to our YouTube channel and see our daily episodes of the featured Guitar Pick of the Day and Reality of Emerald City Guitars shows. Give us a call to chat in person at 206-382-0231 and visit our online store at www.emeraldcityguitars.com. As you may already know, I make custom leather guitar straps. I hand make each strap from start to finish. I start with a hide of some of the finest vegetable tan leather on the market. Each hide is chosen for exceptional quality, color, and grain. If you haven't been to my website lately, you need to check it out. I've got a bunch of new strap designs and colors listed with more on the way. If you don't see the perfect strap, contact me with your custom order idea. Visit malcoleather.com to see examples of custom orders I've done in the past. If you're a dealer, I offer competitive wholesale pricing. Email malcoleather at gmail.com for details. Find me on Facebook, Instagram, and of course, Etsy. If you're listening to this, you get 15% off when you enter code FRETFILES at checkout at malcoleather.com. That's M-E-L-C-O leather.com. 
It's hard for me to talk about the guitars that I make. I feel like I'm bragging, or I feel like I'm being a pushy salesman. But I'm not above reading unsolicited emails from happy owners of my guitars and uh, calling it a commercial. Hi, Eric. Hope you are doing well. Just wanted to follow up and say that I love this guitar. The tonal difference in all of the switch positions is amazing. The neck is so fast and straight, and it's very light. Most importantly, the pickups are incredible. Any tone is available. Nate. Wow. Thanks, Nate. I'm so glad that he's happy with that one. Eric, thanks so much for making my favorite guitar. I've owned so many, and I can't figure out why this guitar feels like the one that I've been playing with my whole life, even though I've only had it a month. Thank you, Eli. Right on. You did it again, my friend. Why do your pickups sound so f***ing good? (laughs) David. (laughs) You know, I tell people it's it's like making a cake. You gotta have the right recipe, you gotta have quality ingredients, and you have to, it all comes together in a certain way. And if you do the wrong thing at any certain step, then you end up with a bad cake. Right. It's like making a delicious, very good sounding cake. Go ahead. Recently purchased the Nitro Blonde pinup custom guitar you made. The intonation, resonance, playability, and that amazing tone in all three coil selections is by far the best I have ever played. I plug in and can't stop playing for hours. I will probably sell both of my other guitars and get another pinup. Thanks, Douglas. That's what I like to hear. Douglas, thank you. And you guys are so nice. You can see these lovely creations at pinupcustomguitars.com. That's P-I-N-U-P, like pinup girl, pinupcustomguitars.com. Hey, Eric. Hey. They didn't even mention me. Hey, Eric. Love the podcast. It's always a highlight when I see it pop up on my podcast app. I've been a jazz master man for a few years. Gasp. But I got my first Telecaster. All right. One of the 1964 American vintage Telecasters from Fender. Yes, I would love to own one of your guitars one day, but this was an even trade for a 6120 that I don't play much anymore. Anyways, it came with a slotted saddle similar to the Jazzmaster saddles. I was wondering what your opinion is on saddle pieces for T-style guitars. I've always thought that brass was the way to go, but didn't know the actual difference I'd be hearing. Thanks for the podcast. Hope all is well. Eric in Raleigh, North Carolina. Thanks. Thanks for the question. Uh, he says... It ha- it came with the slotted steel saddles. Oh, the threaded. Oh, yeah, similar to Jazzmaster saddles. So they're the threaded, uh, threaded rods, basically. Yeah, I was wondering what your opinion is on yeah brass versus steel. I guess so. Uh, traditionally, um, steel tends to be a little bit brighter, and the brass uh, a little bit m- mellower and smoother, but we're talking about subtle differences here. I don't think there's a I don't think there's a huge difference and some people do. Some people say there's a huge difference, but if you listen to a recording of a Telecaster, do you think, "Hey, those those are steel saddles" or do you think those are brass saddles? It's really not it's it's really kind of splitting hairs. Um I do like brass not only because of the look, but because that's the original equipment. Uh, and those, the nice thing about those threaded ones, though, is the strings don't drift. On smooth brass saddles, 
the strings can move right across the saddle and on the slotted ones they really don't move they stay put mm-hmm. so there's there's advantages either way some people say they really prefer the sound of one over the other and uh, i find it to be kind of subjective honestly but to my ear the steel is a little bit brighter mm. yeah cool thanks for the question eric I have a 1968 Strat that I got from my dad. It is my pride and joy. I love it. I've never really had it open, and I got curious, so I took it apart a little bit and was surprised to find that it has 66 pots Mm -hmm. two Mm -hmm. years earlier than the neck date. I did a little research, and it seems like this is common, but I don't really trust the internet. So I'll ask you, is this common? Why would pots from 1966 be in a Strat from 1968? Thanks for the fun podcast, Larry. Thanks, Larry. Yeah, it's true. That is common. And it seems to be that Fender bought a huge amount of pots in 66 and used them for years. Where before that, they never really did that. So um, all through the 50s and up to 66, uh, you could pretty much date the guitar from the date code on the pots. But starting in 66, they bought a huge batch of pots and used them up for years. So you'll find 66 pots in, you know, a little bit later guitars. It's not an issue. It's nothing to worry about. It's totally normal and common. Interesting. Thanks, Larry. So, sorry, before we go on. Yeah. How late did they use them? When did they start using them up? Do you know? Uh, Well, there's not going to be a strict cutoff date because we're talking about a giant bin of pots. Right. And when it got low, they would just dump a whole bunch more in, yeah, you know. Okay. So yeah. uh, you see them for show up for years, I think, on into the early 70s, I think. Okay. But, you know, as far as a cutoff date, I don't have one for you. I really don't know. Well, that's really interesting. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Larry. Yeah. Is there a quality difference between lead-free solder and leaded solder? I read on the internet about how lead-free solder doesn't look the same or is in or is inferior in some way, but is it? Which do you use? Is there anything I should know about switching to lead-free? Thanks, Michael in Ogden, Utah. Our neighbor down there in Utah. Yeah. Thanks, Michael. I use lead-free. Uh, I don't like the the thought of, you know, lead is, is a neurotoxin. It's a it's poisonous metal, um, so I don't like to handle it if I don't have to, and I find lead-free solder to be uh, perfectly acceptable. I, I think that it solders well. Uh, I think that it looks good. I've seen, I've seen people talk about this online too, about how lead free solder joint doesn't look right to them. Well, I've been using it for years. And, uh, when I do a lead free solder joint, it looks fine to me. I don't see much of a difference and I certainly don't notice any difference in quality. I don't notice any difference in, I don't notice a higher failure rate uh, of cold solder joints, anything like that. I don't see, honestly, I don't see any downsides. I, I think that lead-free solder is the way to go. For health reasons. Yeah, for health reasons. Um, it's still considered toxic because that, you know, you don't want to be breathing in that smoke. I do have an exhaust fan to suck the smoke away. Most of the smoke that you're getting when you use rosin core solder, whether it's leaded or 
or lead free is the uh, the the uh, rosin inside. Hmm. There's a uh, a bit of I think it's actually pine tar in some brands. Interesting. Other brands might use a synthetic. I don't know, but most of that smoke is the rosin, and you don't want to breathe it. It's really nasty stuff. It really is. Um, the danger with lead solder is more handling it. Hmm. It gets on your hands, and then you eat a sandwich, and now you have a nice lead sandwich. Right. So uh, if you're going to use lead solder, wash your hands after soldering. But I use lead-free. I think it's the best. Cool. Yeah. Well, thanks, Michael. What's the deal with push-on knobs? Aren't they supposed to be one size fits all? I find that sometimes some knobs just won't fit on some split shaft pots. It seems that import pots need import knobs and USA pots need USA knobs. Is there a way to make them all work with each other? James. James, you, uh, you're you on the right track, my man. Import pots need import knobs, and USA pots need USA knobs. And usually when you order the knob, it will say, this is for metric pots, or this is for USA pots. They Oftentimes they'll call oh. import pots metric. Yeah. So when you're getting your knobs and your pots, make sure that they are compatible with each other. There is no way to make, uh, I mean, I guess there's a way on plastic knobs you you can sometimes it can, because it's plastic you could drill you could drill out one of the smaller ones to make it fit on a USA shaft but um it's going to end up being a sloppy thing it's it doesn't work in my experience you really got to match up the right knob to the right pot thanks james hi eric and melissa thanks for the enjoyable podcast i always look forward to the next episode Eric, can you explain the difference between the different types of fender truss rods? I know that the old ones adjusted the heel and that the modern ones adjusted the headstock. Is there more to it than that? Ben in Sacramento. Thanks, Ben. Uh, There is more to it than that. The old style that adjusts the heel is a single-action truss rod, like we talked about earlier in the podcast. Single-action meaning it acts only in one way. So as you tighten it up, it puts a back bow in the neck. When you loosen it, uh, as soon as the nut is loose f- a little bit, it's not doing anything. The kind that adjusts at the um, headstock end, it depends on what era you're talking about. So the bullet style in the 70s, the uh, truss rod nut protruded a little bit from the the headstock and looks like a little bullet. And that's just a single action uh, truss rod as well. It just adjusts at the headstock instead of at the butt end of the neck. Later, they invented a dual action truss rod. And that's the kind where it does have the walnut plug up on the headstock, but there's a hole in it that you stick the Allen, an Allen wrench in and adjust it there at the headstock. And that kind of truss rod is dual action. And it's basically, uh, a single rod um, truss rod, as you tighten it, it compresses the neck. And then when you loosen it, the nut actually starts to hit the walnut plug and exerts backward pressure on the truss rod. Really an interesting design. Um, I've had to replace those before. When the nut gets stripped, you have to remove the walnut plug right, and replace the truss rod 
nut and then put in a new walnut plug. That's not fun. But yeah, those, so the kind that adjusts at the headstock and has a little hole for an Allen wrench, that's a dual action truss rod. So when you're replacing that nut, Mm -hmm. you have Mm -hmm. to then drill a hole through the walnut plug you just put back in? No, they sell walnut plugs that have a hole in the middle. Oh, nice. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you, you glue the plug in place and then you trim it flush. And the hole's already there. And finish over it. Yeah. Cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yep. That's all we've got for this episode of the Fret Files podcast. If you like the podcast, you should tell a friend. Tell your bandmates. Share it on Facebook, whatever social media platform you're using. Uh, if you have a moment, give us a five-star rating on iTunes or or uh, any other podcast website you're using. It helps us to reach more people, which just helps us to improve the show. And lastly, you should participate. Go to ericdaw.com, click the contact link, and submit your question or comment there. We'll use it as part of the show. The other way to do it is to call 757 757- 774-8482 you can call or text 757-774-8482 and we'll use your question as part of the show thanks for listening good night good night <laughs>